Welcome to the Pioneer Cast. This podcast is specifically for design and construction pros who are transitioning from leading projects to leading and inspiring great teams. Our purpose at Pioneer IQ is simple. It's to equip and empower you to develop your leaders who can inspire people and build and scale their teams. I'm your host, Dwayne Abels, founder and president of Pioneer IQ. The only reason God's put me on this earth is to guide you to see and reach your leadership potential in order to fully serve your family, your teams, and our community. Here we are smack dab crashing into fall. This morning I woke up, went outside, think the temperatures were in the low 40s. And as I was admiring the beauty, taking in a little bit of a peaceful moment, realizing how beautiful the leaves are, I began thinking how quickly the seasons are changing at work and in our economy and in the companies that we're helping to grow. There are a lot of things moving quickly, about as fast as the temperature changes in Kansas City. For most of us, we're walking into the 2023 planning season. We're looking at things that have gone well, things that have changed, how our teams are performing and what we need to do differently or better in 2023 to move our businesses forward. One interesting concept hit me this morning over a cup of coffee looking at the changing color of the leaves. Are we waking up today planning and preparing for tomorrow with some intent and purpose? Or are we just trying to make it through the day? Like, why did we show up today? What is it in our planning process this year that we're going to do that's going to change how our company operates? What motivates our people? That gives us inspiration and motivation to innovate and evolve our services and our experience that we're delivering to clients. I hope that as you listen to this series, you're picking up emotional and intellectual momentum that will help you better design a plan in 2023 that will maximize your team and take advantage of the massive amount of opportunity disruptions in the marketplace. So we're in a series right now that we're calling 2023, the year ago time. And what we're doing in this particular series is judging you as a business unit leader, as a market leader, as a manager, executive and owner, wherever you find yourself right now, But if you're a leader and in charge of planning process, we're challenging you to think through and make decisions for seven specific questions that are mission critical for you to be able to maximize the opportunity in 2023. This particular episode is going to be a challenging one. It's the one piece of strategic planning that many executives and owners will avoid because they're overly optimistic. If you missed it in the first two episodes. The first episode of the first question that we're challenging to think about is within all of the disruptions and all the opportunities, which specific opportunity slash disruption or two or three are you going to take advantage of and intently leverage in 2023? The second episode got into question number two, which is vetting or testing some of your assumptions. And we challenged you to deploy your team, project manager, superintendents, folks on your team to go out and talk to customers and prospects to really understand how this, these opportunities or disruptions are affecting their business plan, their facilities, and what they're going to do in the future. Assuming that you were able to narrow down a couple of answers in both of those two questions, today's episode gets into helping you make decisions about those particular outcomes, insights, and conclusions that you're able to draw with those interviews. Today's question is simply, how are you prioritizing your markets? And when you think about that particular question, obviously we're getting into the concept of economics, social trends, different things that are really driving big opportunities in the industry sectors and the geographic markets that you serve. The three sub-questions to throw out on this topic 
are relatively simple to ask, but sometimes very difficult for leaders to answer. Questions like, which markets are you entering? Which means we have to have markets that we've clearly qualified and we are intentionally entering. Which markets are you expanding? Meaning, which market are you currently in? And based on what you're uncovering about those markets, you've made an intentional decision to expand them. Then thirdly, which markets are you exiting? And when we use the word markets, we're talking about industry sectors or geographic markets. So those three sub-questions are really the three sub-questions that help with that macro question that we're challenging you to think about in this third episode. How are you prioritizing your markets moving forward in 2023? Obviously, this content, this subject matter is way beyond my pay grade. If you've followed us at all, if you've, if you've worked with Pioneer IQ, if you know us at all, you've probably heard the name Keith Prather. I've got Keith Prather here with me to help us understand some of the big macro shifts in the marketplace and maybe some direction on industry sectors and geographic markets that you may want to enter or possibly avoid. Keith, thanks for being with us. Hey, good to be with you, my friend. So we've been working together for, gosh, since 2002. I almost can't do the math there. And you and I together have worked with, I mean, dozens and dozens, maybe hundreds of companies over that time frame. Our whole objective together when we're working with those executives or managers or owners or business unit leaders or team leaders has simply been to help them understand what's impacting their business help them to understand what their markets are likely to do, and then to help them make choices on industry sectors or geographic markets that they should be entering, expanding, or frankly, exiting. As I was preparing for this conversation, I was thinking, and I'm asking you to correct me if I'm wrong, but I can't remember a single time since you and I have been working together for for right at 20 years where we've had more factors that we have to monitor and attempt to forecast and understand how they're impacting design and construction businesses more than we have right now. Would you agree with that? No, absolutely. We're picking up topics and we're talking about things I never thought we would. People kind of look at us like we're crazy in the sense that we're talking about drought in China and how it affects construction activity up and down the I-35 corridor. There's things that we would say in mixed company if they didn't know us very well. They'd be thinking that, my goodness, these guys are crazy. And even though our wives may think that, it's like, we don't want our clients to think that. I mean, Dwayne, there are so many different what we call cross currents happening around the world. And a cross current, think about a ship going across an ocean. It's underway. It knows where its destination is. It's moving at a certain speed. But then all of a sudden, it gets hit with a cross current, something that pushes it off course. And it has to figure out how to recorrect itself and course correct and get back on track. And so that's what's happening to us is we think we know where the economy is headed. We think we know where construction spending is heading. And then all of a sudden we get hit with a cross current and it blows things off track. And so sometimes it blows it off track in a good way. Sometimes it blows it off track in a bad way. But it's getting the data, interpreting the data, processing it, turning it into a story and helping people in a way that lets them do something with it. Right on. Absolutely. I was in a boot camp last week. We were just, we had our DFW boot camp down in Plano. We had people from El Paso, Austin, DFW, Atlanta, Kansas City, Rogers. And we had a great group of folks there. And in the middle of a break, we were at the Osborne Contractors there in Plano, their headquarters. And they've got a really cool game room right off the side of their conference room. A guy walked up to me and I could tell he was deep in thought. Instead of getting my butt kicked in pool, I decided just to check him out and see what's going on because his face was certainly busy. He looks at me and he says, you know, I'm really frustrated as I've been thinking through this leadership content. I said, that's not the normal reaction we get, but what's on your mind? And he said, I'm really pissed off at the lack of direction that I'm getting from my executive team. 
And I said, what do you mean by that? And he said, we're really clear on what our revenue goals are. We're really clear on our profit goals. We're really clear on our employee engagement scores and employee satisfaction scores. But when it comes down to it, I'm not a damn economist. Now, he used a different word. I just chose damn. But he said, my job is to go out and to develop, continue to expand and develop relationships within customers and then hopefully pick up a few new ones. But the pressure that I'm getting is to pick up a bunch of new ones. And quite frankly, I don't know where to start. And I think a lot of people who have taken over a management role where they're now in a team leader position or a business unit leader position, or maybe they're a market leader position. But at the end of the day, most everybody in the design and construction industry has come from this transition of managing projects and tasks to the responsibility of building, growing, and scaling teams. I think an overarching problem that we see, and both you and I see this quite often, is just this lack of the ability of leaders to narrow down and eliminate options for them to pursue. And his point was well made. These folks are beautiful at craftsmanship and design and developing and leading construction and teams. But at the end of the day, they're not economists. What I'm hoping we can do over the course of the next several minutes here is three parts. Part one is I'd love for you to give us some big insights on some insights on bigger trends that are currently affecting the design and construction industry and how long you think that's going to continue to be the case. And then secondly, get into some industry sectors that we believe are green light indicator industry sectors, maybe some yellow light, maybe some red light industries that they should avoid. And then also talk a little bit about some geographic markets and how prioritizing them and how to prioritize them has changed a little bit here in the last year or two. Macro industries and geographic markets. So we'll start with the industry, with the macro trends. So Keith, in, in your opinion, it seems like everything is dramatic right? Interest rates, supply chain, and some of these things. I think leaders have a really hard time delineating between something that's short-term that is here, but isn't going to have such a massive long-term effect versus things that are impacting us that are going to have a short and long-term effect. Can you give us your opinion on some of the current disruptions that are hitting us that'll have both a short and long-term effect, good or bad? Yeah, you and I have talked about this before. And I talked to a CEO the other day, and I didn't even know if I can say this or not, but he looked at me and he goes, Keith, my pucker factor is really high right now. And I guess I could say that instead before I'd say something like fear factor, but there is a tremendous amount of fear out in the marketplace right now. And people are just seeing lots of different waves of different types of data, and it's getting them, it's getting them nervous about making moves. We've heard CEOs say for a long time, over the last six months or so in surveys that they were thinking about pulling back capital spending. But when you and I go in with the actual data, they're not doing that at all. They continue to spend and continue to invest. There's no tomorrow. But but there's no doubt. You and I have also talked a little bit about leadership challenges. And there's no doubt that we're coming out of a period of the last two years where leaders were in crisis management. And they were just trying to keep their doors open and trying to work through COVID, trying to work with a new way to go to work, trying to keep employees basically hired and happy. And then they transitioned from that into this overheating economy where we had two years of demand, pent-up demand that suddenly just unfurled in 2021. And it broke the global supply chain. Now we're trying to hang on to employees any way we possibly can because they're job jumping on us. And so we're focused on that kind of management. And now we're coming back into a phase where things are cooling back down. 
And we can't really put our finger on whether it's just a normalizing trend, whether we're getting back to the way things were prior to the pandemic, which a lot of data will tell us that, or whether we truly are entering a period where we've got a little bit of recession risk. Okay, But it hits every industry a little bit differently. And you have to sit back and think about those specific industries, as you've said, and really understand where they are in this cycle where they are in this curve as to are they fully out of crisis management and now they're starting forward planning and they're ready to go release projects or are they coming off this hot overbuilding phase and now all of a sudden they're coming into a bit of a period where they're slowing down a little bit because they're, they need to take a breather. And then there are other industries really having to start with green shoots yet. And that's the green, yellow, red process you and I go through when we talk about specific markets. We've got everything right now, as I said, about those cross currents. We've got everything from global drought impacting supply. And those are situations where it could take five to 10 years for some of those drought conditions to be over with, like southern China, Europe. And that's forcing decision makers to go in and try and decide if I'm going to source products where am I going to do that? And if they're disrupted by some of these events, they've got to make some permanent changes in the way they source products. And so a lot of them are thinking, now's the time I've talked about it for years. I'm going to make that drastic change and I'm going to bring that manufacturing back to the United States. So that's where we get into some of the reshoring trends and some of the things that you and I talk about quite a bit. It's driving construction trends. But understanding all those cross currents and understanding what's happening in the global market is real important when you try to figure out what's coming over the next two to three years in an industry to make you want to go and target them and make them one of your core competencies. Keith, you bring up a really good point. We've been talking about this nearshoring, onshoring concept for at least four years. We've been following some really cool data that you've been able to track down, and we've been monitoring literally on a monthly basis for at least three or four years. The whole concept of a U.S.-based company bringing their manufacturing operations back to North America can somewhat seem like pie in the sky, maybe not that important to someone working in Kansas City or Dallas or Austin or Jacksonville, Florida, or some of these other places. But it's a real thing. Help us understand where some of that trend, where is it going? Is it coming to the Midwest? Is it in the Southeast? And is it real? Are people really seeing projects from this? Yes, that's a great question. So first of all, there are a couple things. When you go to make a move like that with manufacturers, so if I'm a manufacturer and I want to make a move and reshore operations or nearshore or onshore, as you said, it's millions of dollars and it's decades of commitment to be able to make that move. And so I have to see some long-term trends to make me feel like I need to go make that shift. I need to fundamentally change how I'm doing business on a global basis. And so this really started with trade wars about three years ago, and then we get a pandemic. And then since then, we've had a couple more pandemic scares. Then we have environmental issues, as we talked about a little bit earlier, with 500-year drought that have taken place now in heavy production zones in Europe, heavy production zones in China. And we can go back over the decades and we can look and see, based on the historical record, that each one of those droughts lasted more than two or three years. So it's not like all of a sudden it starts raining next year and the drought in the Yangtze River Basin and the heaviest production zone in China suddenly goes away. These are long-term problems. And then you throw on top of that all the geopolitical stuff happening and, again, executives are really nervous. So that, on top of what is now a brand new technology trend, so you think about now new modern manufacturing techniques are such that when we put up a new manufacturing facility, it doesn't look like an old one. It almost looks like a combination of a clean room environment where you've got high-tech machinery, robotics, full automation, but a manufacturing facility that can be run by 12 to 15 people. So in the past, when the labor cost differential was the big thing keeping you sourcing in some of these cheap labor markets, 
Now all of a sudden I can use automation and machinery. They don't take, they don't take vacations don't take time off. They don't get sick. And I can put up a manufacturing facility that can compete cost-wise with what in some global sourcing. So where does it end up? That was one of your questions. Where does it end up in the United States? If you take a look at how the country is set up and where the manufacturing is landing, you can almost draw lines between the Rocky Mountain chain and the Smoky Mountain chain. And everything in the middle is almost like fair game. So you and I have talked a lot about the I-35 corridor because most people don't know this, but like the average automotive, like the average car crosses the border between the U.S. and Mexico like four times before you get a finished vehicle. So that ability to move component parts back and forth, up and down a distribution system is super critical. And so the I-35 corridor and then the way it branches out and gives access to the Northeast and Southeast are pretty critical. And so that's where a lot of manufacturers are setting up. Because they can get raw materials in, they can get core component parts in very quickly. And so they've got good energy sources and access, and they've also got a good labor pool to pull lower cost of living. There's a lot of factors that really that really focus it on this big Midwest region, going all the way north up into the Ohio Valley, but then stretching all the way back down into Texas. That's where most of it is landing. And the third part of your question for me was, is it real? Because yeah, you and I have been talking about this for five to six years, and the trade wars have now started almost four years ago. And we are now finally seeing growth in actual construction activity in the manufacturing sector in the United States, it was growing 22% year over year on almost $97 billion spending coming up through late last month. So we finally are seeing it's the second fastest growing construction sector in the United States. So is it real? feels real. And most of the analysts that I listen to and the ones that we see forecasts from are saying there's about a trillion dollars right now earmarked for reshoring construction in the United States over the next seven years. So I think it's going to grow at a $100 billion annual rate for the foreseeable future. It's interesting. One of the things that we really did not predict, and I'm not taking anything away from us here, but what we did not foresee is a little bit of bonus material here where we've been talking for years about U.S.-based manufacturers, right, bringing back to, the, to North America, the factor that we had that has surprised us that we weren't forecasting or maybe didn't hadn't thought much about was the multitude of international owners who see North America as the safest place to set up their long-term operations for manufacturing. And to that point, we've seen some math projects. Sherman, Texas, for example, where the microchip wafer company is moving in from Taiwan. Right, the magnitude of a two to four, another two to four billion dollar plant there that wasn't a U.S. owner. It's obviously an international owner, but that compounding what we've seen is just making this a very interesting sector. You know what's interesting? And I'm going to get political for just one second in a good way. So the country is pretty polarized still, right? What started under the Trump administration, we started playing a little bit tough with some Asian manufacturers and we imposed tariffs and that's when the trade war started. One of the things that those foreign leaders and those foreign executives are seeing is that a lot of those policies continued under the Biden administration. When the mm-hmm. U.S. administrations that look so polarized on the opposite end of the spectrum got into office over these eight years, the policy hasn't changed. It's still mm-hmm. a very tough move to try and get a build in America kind of process started. And there's no indication whatsoever that if a brand new party were to fire up tomorrow and take office, that would change. So if I'm a foreign owner, I know I have got to go get a presence in the United States. I've mm-hmm. got to have something in the U.S. if it has buy on it or if it has a buy American component to it. 
that I can meet those demands. And so you think about everything from defense contracting. We learned that there were multiple component parts that go into some of our core missile programs that we were sourcing from an adversarial nation, meaning it was coming from a nation that just because they're a little ticked off at us could cut off our supply of those key components. So just from that perspective alone, national security issues, we have got to physically force sourcing and manufacturing back to what they're calling friendshoring, right? That's where that term came from is I need to be sourcing with governments that think the way we do, that are democratic, believe in freedom, those kinds of things. And those are some of those backdrops to why this isn't just a fad and why it just goes away the minute we get a brand new administration in office and suddenly everything opens up and we have global trade again. It's a consistent pattern we've seen in our administrations across both parties. Another macro trend that you and I have been talking about more recently than maybe ever is the population shifts in the U.S. and how that's ultimately affecting geographic markets, both positively and negatively. Yeah, it's funny. So it reminds me of like an old Yogi Berra quote. So I just did a tour through Texas. I had to drive down there to give a couple talks and I was coming back through and I was just looking at the traffic, man. That traffic is unbelievable, right? And Yogi Berra had this famous quote about a restaurant in Chicago. He says, yeah, no one ever goes there anymore. It's too crowded. And the whole point is, I mean, everyone went there because it's fantastic, right? So you see markets like Texas, Florida, some of the Southeast, up uh, into Georgia, North Carolina, that whole section. And then again, as I said, Texas and then parts of the Midwest, you just see population kind of flocking to these markets and lots of reasons why they're doing it. But those population shifts are creating headquarters shifts and companies moving their bases of operations to be able to take advantage of tax rates and lower cost of living, perhaps, maybe better energy and better water security, all those things. And so they're moving. So we do see those population shifts. So if you're going to make a geographic decision, a market-based decision based on geography alone, as you know, Dwayne, from working with so many construction companies based on their strategy, based on their corporate strategy, they need to look at what happens in those population shifts. And I'll give you an example. Some companies that you and I have talked to, we've looked at Texas, and we've looked at Dallas, we've looked at Austin, we've looked at some of those markets, and we've said, based on the industries you want to target and the kind of customers you go after, there's tremendous phenomenal growth there. But there's also a tremendous amount of competition. And so some clients have decided, I don't play in those markets well where there's a lot of competition. So I need to go to a mid-market like Kansas City or maybe Oklahoma City now where they're still benefiting from some of the spillover from Texas as it's moving north and migrating north. But at the same time, the competition isn't as good as intense. They can do some local branding and really make it work. So, so that is definitely some of the things that we see. But again, it depends on your strategy. I mean, if you're looking for the fastest growing sectors, the industrial complex around the Dallas DFW area is the fastest growing industrial complex in the country. Interesting. So well, let's go into that. So go ahead. I was going to say, that? nobody goes there anymore because it's too crowded, right? That's the joke. As yeah. If you're one of those who can be aggressive and attack it and go after it and heavily, if you've got the cost structure to do it, man, DFW is the best market in the country to be. But if you don't have that aggressiveness and you don't have that cost, that pricing power and that cost structure, then it can get pretty crowded. Absolutely. So you're leading us into the next area that I'd love to dig into. What are some industry sectors that, based on all these big macro trends, we just covered a few of them, but based on looking at these big macro trends that you and I monitor, but you way more than me monitor, what are some industry sectors that you are really big on. So let's say they're green light sectors where it's nothing but a green light for market entry and market expansion. What are a couple of those that you're 
pretty happy about? Yes, the obvious one's going to be manufacturing. We've talked a lot about it. We think the growth horizon there is good over the next five to seven years. That's an easy one. Commercial construction, interestingly, has really started to expand also. So commercial construction right now is up almost 19% on about $112 billion in spending. So you want to talk about a boom market. It's just right in there, right with manufacturing. And so in the commercial category, you've got everything from some of that low-rise retail to multi-use type commercial construction. A lot of it's going to be on the outskirts suburbs of cities. So those are the two biggest ones. Some listeners may do something around infrastructure, the water supply, conservation development, sewage and waste disposal. Those will be other green lights. Part of the infrastructure bill and infrastructure spending is starting to start kicking billions of dollars into that. We're already starting to see hints of that taking place now. So those are probably the biggest green light sectors, Dwayne, if we're going to pinpoint them. It's interesting. We have so much of the infrastructure that's now on our green light list, whereas we didn't necessarily have that on there until more recently. That's right. Water supply right now, construction spending in that sector up 23% year over year. It's surging. It's fastest growing sector. So then yellow light, I mean, you and I have talked about this a lot. Like you think about healthcare, right? Healthcare CEOs have been in crisis management. They haven't been able to spend money because they've just been dealing with COVID for so many years. But they know they have got to go expand facilities and improve those facilities. And that spending is coming. We just haven't seen it yet. Healthcare spending right now is up about 8% year over year. So we're starting to see those little green shoots, those moments where we're starting to see spending starting to unfurl. But they just haven't kicked them in yet. The other thing I would say is like education would be another one of those yellow sectors where just talking to a lot of, especially presidents of universities, a lot of them have allocated funds to do major projects. But those projects have been tied up because raw material costs and labor availability has been short. They've waited and they've got to pull the trigger on those projects before next summer. So June 30th of next year, a lot of them lose their funding authority. Sometime between now and the beginning of next summer, we're going to start to see a surge in higher education spending universities investing, building new buildings and facilities. But right now, that's a sector that's only up about three-tenths of a percent. So it's flat. It's like there's no excitement there, but we're giving it a yellow light because the potential is so high. And there's so much pent-up demand and spending and cash waiting for the right moment. It's just got to release. And so we think that kicks in. And so that'd be one of our yellow light sectors. You know, there was a point in time in our relationship where I spent a lot of time with you, get a lot of information that most people don't have access to. And I appreciate that. But there was a period of time where I was pretty comfortable speculating on red, yellow, and green industry sectors. But education and healthcare are two really good examples. Things are so volatile now. I don't even speculate on some of these sectors that just seem to be no-brainers. And talking about K-12, education in general, and healthcare, even in areas where they have booming populations, which is going to drive those two industry sectors, we're still seeing slower, pent-up, need and opportunity. It's just not being fully released there. Yeah. You and I talked about this not too long ago with another client. And what's fascinating about education is we've had all of these budget surpluses. And you and I were looking at that thinking, man, that's going to lead to these states investing in K through 12, right? They're going to pump all that extra tax cash. They raised record amounts of cash during the pandemic, believe it or not. Everyone thought it would go the other way. It didn't. We had booming surpluses. And they put it into social programs instead of physical construction, improving facilities, increasing security, doing some of those things. But you see them more focused on, and rightfully, it's not picking on them at all. But it's just that spending was focused more on access to healthcare, 
on social programs, soft, we'll call it soft side spending. There wasn't anything in the physical assets that really went in and used that cash. Now the problem with God is going into a recession. Typically, it drops your tax receipts and impacts your budgets. And so we don't know what happens there. That's why it's real speculative. The other thing on education, just as a note, would be we realized that some of these geographic markets have just life cycled out. The population grew. The pent-up need was there. It was designed and built. And it's sustainable. It's another factor a lot of people have to watch when they're considering some of these industry sectors. All right. So lastly, what are some of the industry sectors that you're concerned about that might be on your red light list? Yeah, big one's going to be office complexes and looking at office space. We still only have 47% of the population back to the office from prior to the pandemic. And what everyone's been talking about lately, and we didn't think about until just recently, is that a lot of those contracts for that square footage are being renewed in December, December and January. So for the first time, we'll really start to understand what companies were locked into contracts. Like Just an example, locked into a contract for 40,000 square feet. I've been going to the office now for the last year, and there's nobody in the office. I really need 5,000 square feet. I don't need 40. So when I renew my contract, I'm going to renew for that much smaller office space and continue this new work from home or optional work from home. And so what we don't know is on a national basis, how much more office space comes back into play once we get through this contract renewal process early this year. So I would keep a red light. You and I have talked, I'm back to geography. If you're in DFW, you're probably seeing good, strong office space demand. I mean, it, when you get a lot of corporate relocations, they're absorbing all that extra square footage that's available and they're going to need to build more. It's just how it is. But yeah, I would be that would be my one right now, red market. And I don't know. I think everything else is going to benefit from pent-up demand. So I think the rest of those markets are going to look pretty good. There's, now there's going to be red, what we call red light geographies. You think about an area like Chicago, where suburbs of Chicago, not bad. We're still seeing suburban sprawl. But downtown Chicago is going to have some problems. Downtown New York is still going to have some problems. Downtown San Francisco, downtown LA is still going to have challenges for a variety of reasons. Mm-hmm. But those would be maybe highly cautious, maybe red light type geographies that we would be concerned about. So talk to us a little bit about in this third piece, talk to us about some geographic markets or regions that you're big on, some that you think have a lot of long-term growth in them. So what are some, what are a few of them? And then what is giving you that indication that they're great long-term expansion markets? Growth yeah, markets? you know, yeah, and I think a lot of it, I'm going to start switching. This is the first time maybe you and I have talked about this, but I'm going to start switching to more corridor types of thinking. And I think the corridors are going to develop around distribution systems. So highways, major river systems, major airports, and com- major rail, and the combinations of those together. So it's multimodal, right? So you and I have talked a lot about the I-35 corridor. I think that's what's going to happen is I think as you maybe see markets in Texas start to fill up, the expansion starts to move up that corridor. So it goes to Oklahoma City, and then it moves up into Tulsa, and then it moves up into Wichita, and then Kansas City. But it keeps moving up that corridor because, you know, you're going to find investments in infrastructure for distribution, infrastructure for energy, water supply, all those things. So I think that's one key. The I-35 corridor is key. I think the I-40 corridor is key. But I do think, again, you can carve up the country, I believe, into the midsection between the Rockies and between the Smokies. And that's where a lot of this new expansion is going to be. And then, of course, the heavy population centers, you're going to continue to see Florida and the southeast 
continue to be a big influx of population. And then, of course, Texas is still going to be a big influx of population. But I do think areas west are going to face some challenges coming up. And I do think areas in the northeast are going to face some challenges. So anyway, hope that answered it a little bit. I, I don't want to go say, hey, Des Moines. Everyone's going to Des Moines. <laughs> it's not that kind of thing. I do think it's a really interesting topic now, maybe more so than it's been in the 20 years we've been talking and working together just because there are so many factors that are driving people to make extreme decisions. For example, we've been talking about the Lake Mead drought and how much of a risk that's putting on businesses in the Southwest corridor there. And, um, you know, you and I, we see it, we watch it, we start communicating, we start warning people about it. But for it to affect you and I personally is another factor. Just in between where you and I live, you live in Lawrence, Kansas, I live in Kansas City and Olathe. In between the two of us is what, 18 mile stretch? Yeah. And here we just landed a $4 billion Panasonic battery plant that was originally intended for Nevada, but the water shortage and the power threats that have been made there are pushing it more towards this area of the country. Just to reinforce what we've been saying, there's so many factors now. It just makes it much more difficult for people to make long-term decisions on geographic markets and industry sectors, but it's a must at this stage. Yeah. And Dwayne, just going off that example, you just gave 4,000 workers, high paying jobs, that whole corridor, there's a the highway that runs between our two houses called K-10, Kansas Highway 10. And we have talked for four decades about K-10 eventually looking like it would connect Kansas City and Lawrence. And it hasn't happened. There's farms all the way up and down. One plant, that one plant, and you can already start to see the property being leveled, right? They're already going to start developing that corridor, and it's going to look like that section on I-35 between Dallas and Austin, where it's just continuous city. And that's creating so much of that growth. And so I think that's maybe why you and I focus so much on this nearshoring and reshoring activity. It just has just created such a exponential change in local markets. The enemy to all of this is just being optimistic. Going back to the story that that business unit leader gave me last week and just seeing his frustration, there's such a need for executives and owners and managers to make clear strategic decisions on geographic markets, specific geographic markets, and specific industries and industry sectors so that the people who are best equipped to go out and initiate and start and develop relationships can do that. They just need some help narrowing it down where to go and frankly, in some ways, what to do. If you're not staying up to speed with a lot of the trends that we've talked about, you're not able to communicate those trends to your business unit leaders or your team leaders and they're in turn not having the right information to have legitimate conversations with these prospects and owners for their expansion. So again, going back to understanding which markets and understanding the buyers kind of mission critical to going forward. Yeah, and I, I would throw one thing at the very end there too. And I know you founded your company, Pioneer. It's founded on the whole idea of getting direction and knowing where you're headed very specifically. And as you like, even if you're out, you're out hiking and you know that you want to get to a top of a mountain, sometimes you get down in a valley and that top of that mountain gets obscured. So you still have to figure out how to get directions to be able to get back on track to find the top of that mountain. And that's what I was talking about with cross currents. The captain knows what his destination is or her destination. But when they get hit with a cross current, they get blown off course, they make adjustments and they get back on course. And that's kind of what we're talking about here is I think you set the corporate goal, a corporate direction, you know where the company's headed. And then all these little sub markets and some of these other ways to find market growth is ways that you deal with the cross currents and to keep you on track. Absolutely. Keith, I can sincerely tell you that 
your insight for our clients and who we work with has been such a big help. And I realize that you take phone calls and emails and whatnot from people that we work with 24-7. So I just, again, appreciate your partnership with us and helping our clients with these decisions. All right. So you've heard it here. Again, urging you as a leader to give your team that specific direction on industry sectors to pursue, avoid, or expand, geographic markets to avoid, pursue, or expand so that they can go out and do what they do really well which is inspiring lead teams and build stuff. Looking at, I was walking through DFW, specifically Plano the other day, and I took a picture, posted on LinkedIn. Some of you may have seen it, but there's nothing, there's no other indicator that shows progress greater than a couple of tower cranes putting up a building. You know, and I was at the star in Plano there, and I think there were three buildings with tower cranes on them. And you just sit there and think, man, how lucky are we to be in this industry literally working side by side people who are designing and building our skylines. So assuming that you've been following the series, assuming that you do deeply care about some of these decisions that we're challenging to make, again, hopefully you're able to define some unique needs and opportunities for you to leverage. You've started to test those with existing relationships and prospects. And based on information that you captured using today's insights, hopefully you're able to start to narrow down industry sectors and geographic markets to enter, expand, or exit. The next challenge that we want to put in front of you is a tough one to some people, maybe not tough to others. But the fourth challenge that we want to put in front of you is to determine what makes your team uniquely qualified to serve those clients in 2023. I think part of an advantage that you have the opportunity to take is the fact that we're in a me too world. So most architects, engineers, contractors are It's a me too market, meaning that when someone who has an innovative spirit or pioneering spirit to their organization, all their competitors are constantly watching them and whatever they do, they do. So it's a little bit of a copycat market. It's an opportunity. And this is a market where you have the opportunity to truly define something that's unique, special, different about your team that better qualifies you to serve these industry sectors in these geographic markets with those needs that you are passionate and profitable at serving. Keith, thanks again. Appreciate your help. Just as a reminder, with all this confusion, there's one thing everyone needs. It's called a leader. Most of us were born to follow. Some of you were born to lead. I hope you have the courage to do it. Lead on.